He's asked me to preach on the law today in the next instalment in our series on archetypes. So we're looking at the Old Testament law and the story of the Bible and the way that it can repattern us, especially in light of its fulfillment in Christ. And the sermon follows those we've heard on creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, flood, Babel, law and grace, Abraham, Joseph and Exodus. The law is a huge topic and I am skating over the surface and leaving much more out this morning than I'm including. There are rich resources available to mine on this topic, including the teaching of the Burgesses at camp recently, and the Bible Project has uh, material on this topic which has informed much of what I'm going to share today too. There are many people at St Michael's who I'm sure have valuable insights to offer on this theme as well, and I would encourage you to chat over coffee about this. And there are lots of lawyers at St Michael's. <laughs> I am one of them. And honestly, reading the Bible, it's hard to avoid concluding that lawyers and teachers of the law seem to end up on the wrong side of history. <laughs> it might have something to do with our professional tendencies to analyse, categorise, distinguish, argue, defend, and make a big effort to win. So I am personally very glad that we get to live out this faith journey together in community and to help each other keep our eyes fixed on the challenging call to love that lies behind the law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are known as the Torah, which translates to mean the law. Torah might also be understood to mean guidance, teaching, instruction. And the Ten Commandments are the best known of these laws, but there are other major collections too. The Covenant Code, Laws for Priests, the Holiness Code. And Jewish tradition recognises a total of 613 laws in the Torah. This might be part of the reason why the Church, fairly or unfairly, is perceived in wider culture as being primarily concerned with what thou shalt not do. And even in the Church, we might be tempted to look at the Torah and suspect that that is exactly what it's about. Some of these laws are incredibly specific, many feel foreign to our modern sensibilities. You might be familiar with American journalist A.J. Jacobs' experiment some years ago, which he wrote about in his book, The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. He followed the Ten Commandments to the letter, wore white garments and sandals, carried a walking staff, didn't shave his beard, avoided clothes made of mixed fibres, played a ten-stringed harp, didn't gossip or lie, and even threw some small pebbles at an adulterer. <laughs> he commented that sacrificing oxen and goats was hard to do in modern-day New York, so he didn't do that as much. <laughs> and in more recent times, I remember seeing headlines pop up online during the pandemic suggesting the Old Testament prohibition on eating bats could have prevented coronavirus. <laughs> we might write these things off as slightly ridiculous. The examples might make us laugh, or they might make us feel slightly uncomfortable. 
But either way, they raise questions about what biblical law is, how we should think about it, and how it is relevant to us as people of faith today. To try and keep things somewhat contained this morning, I've given my sermon a subtitle, The Law, or Why We Need a New Heart and How We Can Get One. I'm going to turn to the story of Scripture and draw out three main points at a high level. First, we need more than law to repair and sustain our relationship with God. Second, our hearts are hard and we need new ones. And third, Jesus fulfills God's law of love and his spirit transforms our hearts so we can fulfill the law too. So first, we need more than law to repair and sustain a relationship with God. A preliminary point here is that in reading the Torah, we're reading the story of the Bible, not a textbook or a collection of statutes, but a narrative, however strange, not a collection of directives to obey to make sure we get into heaven, but a story about the laws that were given to ancient Israel in their context. Going back to the beginning of the Torah in Genesis, after the rebellion and exile of Adam and Eve from the garden, humans no longer lived in intimacy with God. And God's good creation continued to be corrupted by this disobedience and violence, as we heard about in Matt's sermon on Cain and Abel some weeks ago. Fast forwarding a bit, we read in Genesis 12 of the call of Abraham and the promise that through Abraham's family, somehow God would restore his blessing to all the nations. Skipping ahead to the book of Exodus, Abraham's now numerous descendants, the Israelites, are led out of slavery in Egypt. They then spend a year at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's presence comes on the mountain, and we hear in that reading from Deuteronomy of the blazing fire, the black clouds, the deep darkness that mark the presence of God. And there, Israel accepts God's invitation into covenant relationship. On Mount Sinai, God gave the law to Moses as Israel's representative. The laws were, in effect, the terms of this covenant relationship that God entered with his people, like a marriage. And the covenant laws weren't an abstract list of do's and don'ts imposed from on high. They were a framework for relationship, to reverse the exile from Eden, and to make a way for God to draw close to his people again. It's worth emphasising here that the laws weren't given to all nations. They were given to ancient Israel at a particular place and time as part of the covenant God made with them. So the laws were given to ancient Israel in their place and their time as part of God's relationship and covenant with them. They were God's chosen people. They were the descendants of the promise that God had given to Abraham. 
The law as God gives Israel might seem uncomfortable and distasteful to us with our modern sensibilities. We need to read them in their context. As a gift of God's guidance and wisdom to ancient Israel in their time and their place. And read in this way, these laws sit in stark contrast to the violent practices of neighbouring nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And we can see that they operated to move and orient Israel more towards justice. The sheer number of laws in the Torah give us a picture of what life was like for Israel at that time. And they illustrate that God was interested in every aspect of life, individually and corporately. The laws had implications for justice, for community, for business, for family and marriage. God showed his care for the details of life. And through the law, God set Israel apart in a way that was designed to reveal his wisdom and his character to the surrounding nations. So through the law and its rituals and symbols, Israel is set apart and made holy. And through the law, God's wisdom is revealed. At the heart of the law is the loving relationship God seeks with his people. Not just Israel, all people. God wants to bless the whole world through Israel. But despite this gift, covenant relationship and law, the story of Exodus we know descends into a story of rebellion and disobedience. The first two laws are broken almost as soon as they're received. While Moses is again up on Mount Sinai receiving some detailed and divinely appointed blueprints for the tabernacle Israel is to build, this tent that will host the very presence of God and allow God to dwell among his people, the Israelites get impatient. Within sight of the presence of God on Mount Sinai, they call on Moses' brother Aaron to make them a gold calf as an idol they can worship as the God that saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Moses intercedes with God on behalf of Israel and God forgives them. But a pattern emerges. Israel cannot keep the law. At every turn, they disobey and rebel. They don't listen to or trust God's wisdom. Each time they disobey, Moses intercedes. God is merciful. More laws are handed down to offer guidance and direction. But the Israelites continue to fail and rebel over and over. God remains faithful and committed to his people who are completely unfaithful. At the end of Exodus, Moses has built the tabernacle, this tent for God to dwell in. But Israel's sin has so wrecked the relationship with God that Moses cannot enter God's presence. And we see here the way that the law points to the holiness of God. The covenant law was designed to bridge the relationship between the people of Israel and God. But Israel's disobedience creates distance. God is holy, set apart as creator, the source and sustainer of goodness, life, purity, justice. And for Israel to live in God's holy presence, they need to become holy too. So the next book of the Torah, Leviticus, God provides a way through the law for Israel in its sin and selfishness 
to be reconciled to God and to live in God's holy presence. And there are three ways God does this. The first is through ritual sacrifices, such as where an animal symbolically dies in place of a wrongdoer and in this way atones for sin, as a reminder of God's grace and justice. The second is by establishing priests as mediators, people called to live holy lives to represent God to Israel and Israel to God. And the third is by providing a framework for ritual and moral purity, by having rules to ensure no one who touches the symbols of death enter God's presence, and by setting out guidance for the way that Israel is to live differently from the nations around them, in their care for the poor, in their sexual ethics, in their concern with justice. There's so much more to say about these things, especially how they inform our understanding of the New Testament and the coming of Jesus, but that's not sermon for today. So moving on to the fourth book of the Torah, Numbers, the Israelites moved from Mount Sinai on into the wilderness, and things do not go well for them. They complain and rebel. They claim they prefer to return to slavery in Egypt. And we continue to see this pattern playing out with Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness. But the disobedience and lack of trust of the generation of Israelites that left Egypt meant they would not leave the wilderness and enter the promised land. Their children would. In the book of Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, Moses explains the law to this new generation as they're about to enter their new home. He sets out the laws again in this context. And at Deuteronomy 6, he says, Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. This is an important prayer in Judaism, calling Israel to hear and to respond. Israel is called to obey, to be devoted to God alone, the one God of Israel. In contrast to the many gods and idols worshipped by the Canaanites, whose land the Israelites are about to enter. So this is important in its core, part of, its, part of Israel's call, to be a kingdom of priests. Unique among the nations, showing the world the wisdom and justice of God. In Moses' final speech in Deuteronomy, he challenges Israel to listen to and love their God. He promises that obedience will bring divine blessing and disobedience, devastation, and exile. In the words of Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses tells Israel that obedience is a matter of life and death. He urges them to choose life. But Moses knows after 40 years in the wilderness that the Israelites can't keep their covenant relationship. The whole Torah can be read as an extended illustration of Israel's failure and inability to be faithful covenant partners. Israel did not and could not keep the laws. They were incapable of living in love and obedience to God. Moses anticipates this failure and faithfulness will continue in the next generation, and he rightly predicts the consequences will be exile. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses diagnoses the problem. He recognises the law is not enough. There is a problem 
with Israel's heart. The problem is the same as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. In their lack of trust in God's wisdom, their grasp for autonomy, and their refusal to obey. And the problem is the same for us today. We need an intervention. To obey God's law, we need more than law. We need new and transformed hearts. Moses also points to the solution. He says that even when Israel is sitting in exile, at any point they can turn back to God and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So this is the second point I want today to make today. Our hearts are hard and we need new ones. Circumcising the heart is a strange metaphor. <laughs> Circumcision as a physical sign showed that Israelite men were part of God's community. And this flowed from God's promise to a childless Abraham to turn him into a nation. Circumcision was a symbolic mark a reminder to Israel that fruitfulness and reproduction was a gift from God. When he speaks of a circumcised heart, Moses adds another layer to this metaphor. He identifies that there's something wrong with the hearts of the Israelites, something corrupted. Stubbornness and pride need to be removed and replaced with something new. And like circumcision, this is connected to a hope for the future. The future of God's covenant people rests on the state of their hearts and on the intervention of God beyond the letter of the law to change hearts. The prophets following the exile of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem later pick up on this metaphor. They point to a day when God would transform human hearts and allow God's people to be faithful covenant partners. So we read in Jeremiah 31 that one day God will renew the covenant and write the laws of the Torah not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people. And in Ezekiel 36, we read that God will one day give his people a new heart, removing their hard heart and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And God promises to put his spirit in his people. Like the divine breath that brought life in Genesis, this creative act of God will renew human minds and hearts and move people into love and obedience. The prophets, in this way, build on the observations of Moses. Fulfillment of the law has a lot to do with the state of the human heart. You don't have to be an ancient Israelite or even a contemporary churchgoer to understand the problem. I've just turned 40, which is pretty official middle age, and I have decades now that I can look back on and recall where I fell short of the mark. I can list many moments where I haven't been the person I wanted to be. I can recognise the failures and mistakes and things I wish I'd done differently. And even now, I can see things I should be doing, 
but somehow don't manage to do. And the story of the Bible seems to understand this. God wants to do something about it, to intervene, to bring transformation, to change our hearts. And so we come to Jesus. And this is the third point I want to make this morning. Jesus fulfills God's law of love and his spirit transforms our hearts so we can fulfill the law too. Ultimately, it is Jesus who fulfills the law. He is the faithful Israelite, the partner to the covenant that Israel was not able to be. He is, of course, Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. Jesus doesn't abolish or set aside the law, but he distills it into its essence. The great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. In his teaching in Matthew 5, Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments to point to how expansive this law of love actually is. He says, if you're going to live in God's kingdom, obedience means more than following the letter of the law. To paraphrase, he tells his followers the command, do not murder, is fulfilled only when we do not speak or even think badly of another person. Jesus himself fulfilled the law by living in obedience to this radical call to love, even to his death. And in Matthew 15, Jesus agrees with Moses and the prophets. The problem is the human heart, our inability to love God and love others and to fulfill the purpose for which we've been made. Responding to allegations of the Pharisees that the disciples were breaking the law by eating with unwashed hands, Jesus points out that it's not got what goes in, into someone's mouth that defiles them, but what comes out. Because the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. So, something more than the law is needed to deal with our broken and crooked hearts. And that something is the life and spirit of Jesus. In his crucifixion, Jesus died as the Lamb of God and bore the consequences of human rebellion like the ritual scapegoat of Leviticus. He made a way for people to be reconciled once and for all to a holy and just God. And Jesus makes a way for his followers to fulfill the law of love too by giving his spirit to transform our hearts. We receive the spirit to renew and transform our hearts and in this way we are made able to fulfill the law to love God, to love each other, to be in relationship, to be God's children. And in this way, we can live out the words of Paul in Romans 15, that love is the fulfillment of the law. So to close, I'd like to ask you to join me as we pray. God, please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. 
We pray your love and power would change and transform our hearts so that we want to love our neighbour and love you. We pray for your radical love to burn hot within us and to pour out into the world around us.